My name's Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, can you open up to Mark chapter 2? We are going through that series and we are uh, finishing off the second chapter now of this fast-paced gospel. Um, We will be going into chapter 3 as well, so we're covering plenty of ground. We're going to be covering today a pretty uh, uh, well-misunderstood doctrine of Scripture, which is the Sabbath. Should Christians keep the Sabbath? What is the the, the purpose of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. How should we be relating to it now? So uh, uh, Jesus and the Sabbath, we have entitled this sermon. And we're going to see from Jesus and his uh, interaction with the spiritual leaders of the day what, uh, what Mark wants us to know as New Testament believers. The book of Mark has been, so far, we saw in chapter 1, the announcement and arrival of the king. Uh, preaching his own kingdom and proclaiming that the, 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 the king has come. But then chapter 2, we've started to see that there's some opposition building. So he'll, he'll, uh, he went and he uh, pronounced forgiveness over uh, the lame man and people got offended by him and he read their thoughts and, and addressed it. And then he went and dined with the sinners and the, the tax collectors, the enemies of the Jewish state and the prostitutes. And, and everybody else started questioning his motives in doing that and questioning his holiness. And he, of course, answered them as well. And then not so much a, a questioning, not so much a, a simple uh, misunderstanding. But then we saw an open accusation last week when the accusation came in the form of a question, like really good Christians and and, uh, religious people are good at doing. They just want to ask a question, but really it's an accusation. Why is it, Jesus, that you're breaking the law all the time, you sinner? Your people aren't fasting like we are. And of course, his response was that I'm obeying the law. There's no law that commands these fasts. In fact, the purpose of fasting is expired when the meal is put down in front of you in the person and work of Jesus. He said, it's inappropriate to be fasting at the moment. I'm here. But this week, and, and you have to realize how offensive, how out of place and out of touch with the spiritual landscape Jesus would have seemed in that time and day to those people to have been. To be saying that fasting is sometimes appropriate, personal, uh, you know, it's on your conscience, but it's not required. Get your, your stinking religious rules off me and my disciples. That would have been so offensive to that day when, when the sign of holiness was how much these Pharisees fasted. They would, they would intentionally dishevel themselves, make themselves look like they're starving, even though they would fast twice a week. It's not even a very long fast. If you can fit it in between the six days between Sabbath, because you're not allowed to fast on Sabbath, it's like max one or two days. Not even that impressive. I'm sorry if you went out this week, tried to fast after last week's sermon, and you couldn't get through 12 hours, and here I am insulting you. 24 hours is no big deal. 48 hours is, is basically nothing. But, but anyway, here they are. They're saying they're so holy because they fast, and Jesus just destroys them. And what he's been showing them is that the gospel that is coming in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures does not mix with man-made religion. So he's saying, your system has to be blown to the ground, and I promise you it will be, Jesus is saying. And this week, we see him go for the jugular vein. He goes straight to the Sabbath 
keeping rules that the Jews had built up and painted on and added to and made this enormous pile of laws around the Sabbath and how to act on a Saturday and how to everything you were allowed to do and not allowed to do. And that was the, the height of Judaistic religion in the temple, second temple era that, that Jesus approaches. It is I, I, we cannot overestimate how important these Sabbath, not, not the true God-given Sabbath, but the Sabbath rules that they made, how important and central it was to this Jewish religion. So he was threatening their whole built-up uh, uh, empires. In forgiving sins back in chapter 2, he threatened their power over people like Luther in the Reformation. Here they are thinking, if if everybody can just have their sins forgiven straight from God, they're not going to come to temple and pay all their money and pay us for the sacrifices and come to us as their spiritual gurus and the financially motivated spirituality. But you can't just forgive people. They have to pay for that. And in dining with sinners, he threatened the whole reputation that really holy people never engage with the worldly people. In refusing to fast, he threatened their outward signs of holiness. And today, as he mocks and challenges their stupid rules around the Sabbath, he threatens their entire system of religious observance and tradition. Jesus is saying, I have no interest in helping you build your little sandcastles. Here Jesus comes onto the scene and you have the, 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 the two schools of Judaistic thought and you have John's disciples and you have all these people asking Jesus, are you going to come inside with me as I build my little sandcastle? Help me make it bigger and better than the other guys, the other kids on the beef at their sandcastles and Jesus is driving a bulldozer. Now I'm not coming to join in any of your little play dates in the sand. I'm coming to pour down divine concrete destroy your religious systems, and build a palace fit for a divine king. So he doesn't mince words, and today we're going to see it. He is going to go straight to the Sabbath. Let's see. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23 and onwards, it reads like this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether, they, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out 
and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. May God bless the reading of his precious and holy, inerrant, powerful word to us today. <clears throat> well, here we see this accusation come against Jesus again. He, he and his disciples are just walking through the fields, uh, as you do in the countryside of, of, uh, of Galilee, and, and, and they're, they're going through, and, and his disciples... They didn't pack lunch because they don't think ahead because they're guys, and they just get drive-through. They start picking the, uh, uh, the, the heads off the grain and rolling it in their hands, getting all the husk off it, and then just popping the grain to eat it. And these accusations come against them by these men who are following them, saying they are breaking the rules of the Sabbath. And they, they tell on them. They tell on them to Jesus and say, you know, mister, your guys are, are doing what is not lawful. And to get our mind around why they were so worked up about this, you have to get in uh, to understand all the rules they had around Sabbath. There was, in all of the books that they had, now, I know, lots of books. We mean just the books on the Sabbath. Just the books they had about rules on the Sabbath. They had, all in all, 234 chapters of rules about what you are allowed to do and not do on the Sabbath. And the responsible Jew knew all of those rules. Some of them included, because they would, they would take uh, uh, instances or situations or commandments from the Old Testament, and they would, they would extrapolate them out and say, well, obviously, this applies to all of these areas of life. So, so they had a rule against carrying things on the, on the Sabbath, now, remember, Jewish Sabbath is Friday afternoon at dusk till Saturday sunset. So that full 24-hour period, evening till evening. And in that 24-hour period, you're not allowed to carry anything, including a handkerchief. Yeah, you sinners, I see you all with, the, with those. Uh, you are not allowed to... Now, now modern day, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews even do not carry key rings. Nothing was allowed to be carried that was not worn on the person. I think this is where cargo pants got invented. Not invented for style. We all know that. But they had so many pockets, they can just keep them all in there. Obviously, that's, that's what they did. So they, you're only allowed to carry something you were wearing. Although, of course, uh, the, the rules kind of change because what if you're in your own home? I mean, you're allowed to. So you're allowed to pick things up in the home, but you're not allowed to put them down in public. And you're allowed to pick something up in public if you're going to put it down inside your home. And uh, you really were only allowed to pick up the things in your home that were necessary. So uh, unnecessary things such as uh, pencils and candles were against the rules. Because that's the rules they made uh, for that day. Pencils and candles are obviously sinful. They had a rule that if <laughs> you're not allowed to stitch and sew and, and knit on the Sabbath, and so they uh, 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 would have this rule that if you're walking along and something catches your good Sabbath outfit and rips it, you are not allowed to sew it together. What you were allowed to do was put one stitch in. So you just, I guess, pick the most awkward body part to be showing under you and you sew it there and then that's it for the Sabbath. And if they catch you sewing one more stitch... They will have at you. So no, no more than one stitch. They had a ridiculous rule about uh, you are only allowed to walk 1,999 paces, which 
the distance is going to be different for a tall guy versus his short, you know, girlfriend or whatever, that he's going he's gonna to end up getting home and she's still stuck in the field because she had shorter legs. It's very traumatic. Uh, uh, but, but what is very likely is if Jesus and his gentlemen are walking through this field, they're very likely breaking that rule, which is not a rule. Uh, so they're most likely walking more than 2,000 paces. And what's interesting is the Jewish Pharisees are following him. They're right behind him. So of course, they're not going to pick up on the fact that they're walking too long. Well, forget that rule because we're following him. Uh, and, and they have nothing against accusation and breaking of the ninth uh, uh, commandment of, of, uh, 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 of, um, of seeking to lie and accuse and bear false witness. They had no problem with that. But what they really had a problem with was picking the grain. Modern day Orthodox Jews have rules because you're not allowed to light a match or light a fire, according to the Old Testament and their sabbatical rules, that applies today to the sparking of electrons in electricity. So they're not allowed to use lifts. They're not allowed to turn on a car. They're not allowed to use any form of electricity. They have to leave all the lights on overnight so that they don't have to touch it the next day. In Israel, they have Sabbath lifts where you line up in front of them and it just stops at every single floor so there's no button pushing. You just stand on it, you get out at your floor and uh, um, I love being a Gentile, I guess is what I'm saying And at the end of all of this. They were absolute, utter formalists. And as we hear all those rules, you need to realize that you and I are as prone to rulemaking to the end of absurdity as, as they are. This is just human nature. As we are uh, uh, trying to relate to God and relate to others in religiosity, the more absurd things become, the, the more in love with that spiritually religious, uh, rule-loving people enjoy it. It's, it's, it still happens. I was, I was talking, I've spoken with multiple pastors. Uh, another guy just recently, he was telling me about his pastor. And there's this, there's this, this, this damnable thought called pacifism. And uh, I'm actually going to be uh, teaching on this in this week's Biblical Manhood series, Should We Fight, Should We Defend, all of that stuff. But, but there's this idea of pacifism, where, where, and, and, and this specific situation that I was talking to a pastor about, and it's been repeated in other conversations. They say, you know, we're so holy, we, we, we love the rules, and blah, 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 and here's what Jesus said, blah, blah, blah. You're not allowed to fight or defend anybody as a Christian. <clears throat> And so the example comes out that, you know, what if somebody comes in, knife in hand, takes your wife, your daughter's there, they're threatening to abuse your daughter, what are you going to do? And, and the holy, about to graduate seminary, pastors say, I would stand there and pray that God would bring that man to repentance and I would watch. And the other guys go, wow, just so holy. Yeah, Exactly. Because we're not allowed, you know, turn the other cheek even. Open up the doors to all your other kids. That's what you should do, apparently. And, and we hear this, and hopefully all those with screwed on theological heads go, yeah, nah, that's not going to happen. That is, in theological nomenclature, ridiculous. But, but the more spiritualized and, and legalistic you become, you hear something and go, hmm, yes, may God be glorified. And, and so in the, in the same way, these guys, with all these ridiculous Sabbath rules, they say, wow, look at this list. Look at how holy this is. And they, and they loved it. Formalists today, you and I are, are given to just as much religiosity 
and legalism as the Jews were, if we are not common, uh, frequently reminding ourselves about the gospel of free grace, justification by imputed righteousness, we fall into the same traps. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this behavior of the Jews, says of legalism and formalism, right? where we're more dedicated to outward shows of holiness than genuine uh, relationship with God, says that it can neither comfort, satisfy, nor save. While we might mock all of this, there is a degree to which we have to ask our own hearts, am I seeking comfort, satisfaction, and salvation in what I'm doing to be seen by others and the Lord? And if so, I just want to implore you and invite you and command you, you will not find comfort there. You will only find more and more uh, uh, rejection and, and failure according to the rules the more you try you will not be comforted, you will be discomforted. You will not be saved, you will be judged, and you will become judgmental of everybody else. True gospel, spiritual life comes through the, 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 the finished work of Jesus Christ and sticking to what he says in the scriptures. So he, that, that was the, the accusation. They, they basically said, when you picked that, that was reaping, and you're not allowed to reap a harvest on the Sabbath. Apparently, that is the same as getting the forces out and taking in the whole harvest. And then they said, and as you, you roll them in your hands to remove the, surf, you know, the, the outer husk so that you can eat them, that counts as, as winnowing. And you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you're breaking the law all over the place. You're uh, immoral, and Jesus somewhat mocks them. He says, oh, we're pretending we don't read the Bible. That's what we're doing at the moment. Is it? It's his answer comes in the form of showing them <clears throat> that the Sabbath allows for works of necessity. In Reformed theology, and what, what we want to show today is that we have uh, uh, traditionally uh, used this phrase in talking about what we're allowed to do on the Sabbath. The Sabbath allows works of necessity and mercy. You're going to find that in the confessions. You're going to find that in today's passages. Jesus is going to show, first of all, that works of necessity are absolutely allowable on the Sabbath. You can even do three stitches if you want in your broken dress. I think that's pretty merciful. So Jesus, his short answer could have been, and it wasn't, and I don't want to edit or suggest what Jesus should have said, but if it was me and they said to me, why, look, you know, why are your disciples not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I simply would have said, they're not. There's no law against what they're doing. There's your silly rules. There is no law. End of discussion. Keep on eating and move on. Jesus doesn't do that. He actually acts more as a, a lawyer, acts more as a, uh, an exegete and goes to Scripture and shows to them that there is precedent for a law-abiding Jew bending God's ceremonial laws uh, uh, in order to meet human needs. And even... As we say that, that feels just a little bit blasphemous. Bending God's laws to meet human needs. Are we allowed to do that? Jesus shows us that in some instances, yes. So let's read. Jesus says, he gives this precedent. He goes to the Old Testament. He says, have you never read? I love that. He's mocking them. You guys don't read? There's a guy in the Old Testament called David. You might have heard of him. Kind of a big deal. He was a king. And of course, they're insulted that he would even suggest they don't know who that is. Haven't you read? Asi Sproul comments on this and says in his, you know, his beautiful voice, what's wrong with you people? Don't you read your Bible? 
If you did, this question wouldn't come up. And so here Jesus says, don't you read your Bible about David when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. What happens here is that this is back in 1 Samuel, I believe, chapter 21. Let me get that for you. Yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And David is on the run from Saul, the king, who is seeking to destroy his life. And, and David, with his uh, band of brothers, his mighty men, he starts running away. He doesn't want to wage war on the king. He knows that's forbidden. And so the temple is not built yet. They have a, a, a large tabernacle up on another mountain. He flees from Saul, goes to the tabernacle, and enters it empty-handed and says to the high priests, do you have a weapon? I love that they had an armory in the house of God. We should get some guns on a rack in here. It's cool. They, they, they go, yeah, look, we're actually out of blades, David. Rather, what I have is, is, is the show sword which belonged to Goliath, the giant you killed. Will that one do? And David says, yes, that's perfect. Hand it over. And so he gets the sword, but he says, and that's just a part of the story, quite irrelevant. The important part is that he, he is hungry. And he's in the temple of God, and he says, do you have anything that me and my men can eat? We're famished. And the, the priests say there's nothing, only the bread in the holy place. Right? You know that there was the holy place where they would go in and burn incense, only the priest, and then it entered into the most holy place where God's presence was said to dwell with the Ark of the Covenant. And they said, all that we have is the bread of the presence. These were 12 loaves of bread that were cooked each Sabbath, and taken into the holy place and put on the table of the presence, a short little one-meter table. And, and the, the, the loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel, that they were invited in to feast with God in communion. And each Sabbath, they would take it out and rotate a fresh batch, and the priests, only the priests, were allowed to eat that, because it was a matter of holiness. And David says, well, give me the bread of the presence, which Jesus says it is unlawful that they eat it. And he takes it, and the ceremonial law of God was bent for human necessity in hunger. We want to ask, isn't that entirely against the standards and the very nature of God? God cannot change. This is called divine immutability. He cannot change. His law cannot change. That is a reflection of his very self. If, if God just decided one day, I don't mind adultery, commit it and I'll bless it, and then the next day he switches back to his old rules, he would cease to be God. God cannot change. What he approves cannot change. What this points us to is the, you might want to write this down, remember it in your head, the threefold division of the law of God. The threefold division of the law of God. Of God. The Old Testament can be not neatly broken out, uh, broken down into chapter and verse in this way, but uh, prince, uh, principally can be broken down into three main divisions of law. One of the sections of law is called the moral law, and it was pre existent to the Sinai covenant, the Moses dispensation, and the Israelite nation. It was before them. It was codified for the first time, written down on the tablets of stone by the finger of God himself for the Israelites, and it was contextualized to their nation and context. However, it represented the ten laws that represent God himself that are entirely universal, they apply to everybody from Adam, and timeless, eternal. 
They apply forever. They are the true standards of God's morality, the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are the moral law, pre-existent, applied to everyone, everywhere, all time. However, then God, out of those, extrapolated for the Jewish context two other sections of law. One was the ceremonial law, which governed their worship and their temple practices. The other one was the civil law, which applied the Ten Commandments to their uh, nation and their, their court and legal systems. Now, what, what we call this is, is the commandments in the Ten Commandments, the moral law, are sometimes spoken of as created com uh, creation commandments or creation covenant mandates. In other words, they come from creation. God made man in the garden, and from that point on, the Ten Commandments applied. It was always a sin to commit adultery, whether God had written it on the, on the tablets or not. However, what we call positive law, positive law is the ceremonial and civil. We have some positive law in the Christian church, things like the Lord's Supper, things like baptism, that, that does not apply in a universal, timeless way back to creation, forward into eternity, or out into everybody alive. This applies to the Christian church. And those positive laws, which are built in principle out of the Ten Commandments, do not have, in essence, the same authority and substance as the Ten Commandments. They are God's uh, 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 application of law to certain instances and people. So, with all of that explained, what Jesus is showing us is that David, knowing this, had no problem with bending the positive, contextual, uh, ceremonial, or civil laws if the act would greater uphold the spirit of the, the moral eternal law, which is to do not kill or, in other sense, maintain and protect human life. My men are, are galloping through the desert. We are starving and near death. Is it lawful for the ceremonial law to be somewhat bent? And maybe in our example, feed the, the starving man our communion bread. Would that be lawful? Of course it would be. Human need that is born out of the, created com the creation commandments, the eternal commandments, the Ten Commandments, are more authoritative than, not more correct than, I'm not saying there's any error in those laws, but they are more universal, more authoritative than the other ceremonial and civil. Jesus argues this way, and he says, basically from an argument of greater to the, uh, from the lesser to the greater, he says, if David, the king, was allowed to bend a or even break a ceremonial law, is not the son of David, the Lord of David, the great king of the universe, is he not allowed to bend one of your stupid man-made laws? Surely this logic follows, gentlemen. And so they go on feasting on the grain. That's Jesus' argument. And it re what really would have hit home to them was his application or summary of this doctrine. When he says, Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That would have cut them to the core. Everything you do as a Jew, in their mindset, is supposed to uphold and obey and bend the knee to the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws and rules and regulations. I don't care how misplaced you are, how annoyed you are, inconvenienced you are, whether the Sabbath is restful for you or not. You have to obey these rules. And Jesus is saying that is entirely misplaced. The Sabbath 
was made for man. This doesn't mean that we as humans are Lord of our own Sabbath keeping, that we get to decide whether we obey that commandment or not. The point is that that the Sabbath was made to benefit man. It was made to bring rest to man. It was meant to be healthy, helpful, beneficial, recharging, relaxing for man. If your rules, these 234 chapters of rules, stop it from being that, they have broken the spirit of the Sabbath. And then, just as you think that they are as offended as they could possibly be, he then says, and the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. They're offended enough that he's not saying that Sabbath is king. So no, no, it's servant, it's a servant to mankind. It's meant to help us one day in seven set aside to worship God, set aside from our ordinary labor. What is our usual work becomes a blessing to stop and focus on the Lord and his mercy to us. But then he says, I, as the Son of Man, am King of the Sabbath. Just as it was God's ability to create the Sabbath, because it's his world that he created, so also Jesus, who was God in Genesis, who is still God now, Jesus is saying, I made the first Sabbath. Don't tell me what I'm allowed to do and not do. I'm kind of in charge of this whole deal. And this is foreshadowing what we will get to at the end of the sermon. He's saying, if I want to change the rules, if I want to change the day, make Sabbath a Wednesday, I have the prerogative to do so. I'm allowed to. It's my Sabbath. So Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Your hands do not belong on my rules. You do not get to call and charge authority over me. They would have been seething at this point. Since he used Bible, they had no argument. So they walked away. Go over to chapter 3 now in verse 1 through 6, and this is a whole new scene. We've seen, number one, that what's allowable on the Sabbath is works of necessity. Yes, feed your kid. Yes, turn the lights on. Yes, it's okay to do those necessary works. But in chapter 3, we see Jesus intentionally provoke them, intentionally stir the pot, kick the hornet's nest, do whatever you, you want to picture him doing. He pokes the bear. So he enters into the synagogue, and we can see from the pattern that he would have been teaching. We see this in the other gospel accounts of this story. He was teaching in the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. This might have been from birth. This might have been an injury. This might have been a curse from God. We, we don't know, but he had a withered hand. Our church history tells us that he was a stonemason who needed that hand for work. We really don't know. But in that day and age, without Centrelink, he's out of a job, out of money, out on the streets if he cannot work, and he needs his hand to do so. This poor man, suffering unable to supply for his wife and children. He's there to worship the Lord. Hear what he might speak to him in mercy and grace. And these Jews, these Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're sitting in the front and back row, intently watching Jesus, not to hear what he's saying, not to see if he's helpful and extends mercy to the suffering man, but just to see whether they can accuse him, to bring a false witness against him. 
And Jesus knows it. You, part of their rules was, if Jesus had called him to the front and said, brother, I will heal you tomorrow. I, I promise healing, but just to be culturally sensitive to the Jews, I don't want to step on their conscience. They've got this rule up in Galilee. They were the more relaxed of the, uh, of the uh, uh, Sabbath rules up there. And here Jesus is preaching. He could have said, according to their rules, we cannot heal on the Sabbath unless it's life-threatening. So what I can do, and of course in their mindset, healing meant wiping away the blood or the poison or dislocating the lion from the person's head. They didn't have healing like we might think it. They definitely didn't have in their category speaking a word of sovereign power and bringing somebody into health. They meant applying nursing strategies. And they said, if it's life-threatening, you can do it on the Sabbath, but only the minimum. You know, stop him bleeding, cross your fingers till tomorrow. But, but Jesus, and so here's this guy coming in, not a life-threatening disease. He could have said, I'll heal him tomorrow. Let's not offend everybody. And instead he says, I see that hand. Come on down to the front. We're going to do a healing uh, uh, ceremony. Right out in front of everybody, brings out his withered hand, and he looks out at everybody. He makes a teaching point of, I don't want you to think that we believe in this, this, this uh, soft and sissy Jesus who, who never offended anybody, who was very polite to all of the religious rulers. He provokes this, gets the guy up in front of everybody, and then hand on shoulder, asks everybody, hey, hey guys, I just want to ask you, uh, uh, leaders of, of religion, uh, uh, kings of the law who, who know God's heart and nature and holiness and, and all of that, can I ask you, is it legal to do evil or good on the Sabbath? Like, What's better, harming somebody or helping somebody? Of course, the only answer is that if it's good to do good on any day, then it's great to do good on the Sabbath. There's no working around that. Okay, okay. Second question to which they, they didn't answer the first. He's moving on. Okay, and, and is it lawful to heal or to kill on the Sabbath? You have to see what's going on when he asks that question. He's, of course, about to heal him, but he's looking at them who have murder in their heart. They're planning and have already been, before this encounter, plotting his murder. And they're going to pull him up on not being holy. Just tell me, what's better, murder or healing? Stares at them. They don't answer. What Mark tells us, they sit in silence. They had no answer. They, they preferred, and even the people blindly following, they preferred to fit an outward conformity to, to, to rules than they did about pleasing God. How often we fall into that. We, we know what is right. What are we going to do? Please God and then be an outcast here? No, thank you. They, they preferred to, to seem to be holy than to be truly holy. They preferred the status quo of religious rules about Sabbath than seeing a suffering man healed. It's, it's like we had in, in this rule a no getting up during church rule, and it was, it was such a strong, everyone knew it. You got, you know, your, your old, old star, you got the cane if you got up during the church service, and, and some kid coming down from, from Sunday school upstairs tumbles down the stairs and lies bleeding. I'm sorry if you've got kids up there. Don't picture it. But lies bleeding at the bottom of the stairs. And you all look around. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to help him. Shouldn't have tripped. That's a curse from God. That's what that is. He must be a sinner, that kid. And, and, and here they are. They're looking around and go, well, we'd rather be outwardly holy than help a man or see a man helped at all. Jesus, Mark's language here, says he is 
furious. He is fuming at their hardness of heart that refuses to be changed in tenderness towards a suffering person. So he, right in front of them, it's, it's almost a, a small bracket of the story. It's not even the main point. He just heals him with a word. He says, stretch out your hand. And as the man points it out there, it is healed in front of everybody. Can you, in that act, man standing next to another man saying, stretch out your hand, and one man stretching out his hand. Can you see anywhere there laborious work? Did, he, did anything happen there that broke a sweat? He didn't even carry a handkerchief to do this. Nothing. And that is enough for them. They see that and they leave. They storm out of the church, out of the synagogue. They go out and they continue plotting the destruction of Jesus because he dared to speak a word on his day to one of his people of healing. And there's one more step of hypocrisy. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians. We don't read much of the Herodians, but we read a little bit of Herod. Remember Herod? Heard? He, he had the very same heart. These guys are religious. He's political. But they have the same response to Jesus. They hear that a king is coming and threatening their power. What did Herod do? When the, when the kings of the east came and they wanted to visit this newborn baby king of the Jews, Herod had every infant boy in Judea slaughtered. The streets ran blood, ran red with blood. He, he, he murdered every little kid because his kingdom got threatened. That guy had three sons. He gave them all a portion of his kingdom and, one, and, and, and they were called the Herodian kings. The Pharisees despise that political, Roman, overreaching, tyrannical government. Despise them, hated them, never had anything to do with them. And the Herodians, the, the political party who loved Herod, who were funded by Herod and his sons, and loved the Roman rule, and were getting rich off the Roman rule, they hated the Pharisees, never had anything to do with each other. Except when it had something to do with killing Jesus. Then they will hold counsel, meet together, shake hands, give each other a, a holy kiss, bless one another, read the scriptures and see how holy they are in this endeavor. So, so rewind it back. Jesus is there. A man is healed. That is more sinful than calling up assassins on the Sabbath. That is more sinful to help than, than plotting the death of the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see the contradiction? It's his day. On his Sabbath, they're going to call the, the enemies of the Lord of the Sabbath to organize how to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. There's no words for the ridiculous Gordian knots we get ourselves in when we are more committed to outward holiness than to true godliness. But here is Jesus this Lord of the Sabbath, who in his mercy healed the man and shows us that works of necessity and therefore in what he did next, works of mercy are perfectly permissible. In fact, gloriously fitting to do on the Sabbath. And I've gone a little bit over, so I will quickly, that word means nothing to me, I will quickly uh, uh, surmise what we as Christians should think about the Sabbath. Do we keep it? What is the, why is it Sunday, not Saturday? All of those rules that, and questions, sorry, that come up. I want to just recap here. 
for us, the, we need to realize that the, the command of Sabbath, having one day in seven that is restful and worshipful, that commandment has been in play since creation when God hallowed the seventh day. It is still applicable today, though we're going to see some changes have been made. <laughs> it's an eternal rule, part of the creation mandate, creation covenant, natural law, moral law, and it applies to all mankind in all time. Uh, God made the Sabbath on the seventh day. Genesis 2 tells us that he hallowed it. He made it holy, set it apart for the purpose of worship and rest. And therefore, because this God is not just the God of spirituality, but also the God of creation, woven into our physical, spiritual natures is a one in seven pattern. That we will be at our healthiest, at our most benefited, most most, uh, uh, most productive when we discipline ourselves to not only nightly sleep, but a one in seven pattern of rest of our ordinary labors. God did that because in Genesis we read, he finished his work of creation and then made the seventh day a Sabbath. The, the creation of the Sabbath was his last act of work in creation. And so also we see that in the uh, in the Sinai covenant through Moses to the Jews, God applies it to them as well. And he doesn't change the day. It's the same day, the seventh day. And he also ties it for them to the Exodus salvation and ties it to the fact that he is the God who redeems them. He makes all these rules that are very specific to the Jews. But Jesus, in his same authority as God speaking at Sinai and God creating the Sabbath on the seventh day, in that same authority, when he finished, not creation, but his redemption, redemptive work, he, on the first day of the week, consecrated it as the new form of Sabbath. Not the Jewish Shabbat, which is the Saturday, but now a Sunday, a first day of the week set aside for Christian worship. As we read through the New Testament, we see that Jesus rose in resurrection on a Sunday, first day of the week. He then started appearing to the disciples on Sundays. Then he would take a break from them, come back and see them on a Sunday. Then in, in Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. Christians throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts began meeting on Sundays because they saw it as the day that Jesus has made the Christian day of celebration. Also, very practically was, they would do their Jewish celebration on Saturdays, and then Sunday they did the Christian uh, uh, enjoyment of celebration. That was just functionally how it worked until they were separated from the temple and, and cast out by the Jews. And then the Gentiles, all throughout the, the latter portion of the book of Acts, started meeting on Sundays, as we see in the book of Romans chapter 16, and Acts chapter 20, and in Revelation chapter 1, John calls it the Lord's Day. That's, that's what they called it, the Lord's Day. I know we call it Sunday, it's the Lord's Day. It's Jesus' Day is Sunday. And so to us, we, we still, uh, instead of looking back to an Exodus redemption, we look back to Jesus' salvation. And we also, in resting on the first day, not the last day, but beginning our week, we look forwards to what Christ will do through us, but also forwards to the redemption that is to come in our eternal rest, which is heaven, and the glory that is still awaiting us. So very practically, yes, if at all possible, we should be 
Setting aside Sundays as our day devoted to Jesus, we attend church in person for worship and for fellowship. I want you to not overload yourself with rules and regulations about Sabbath, lest it become more more burdensome to remember them all than it is actually restful to enjoy it. Uh, especially we are understanding of single parents or people looking after d- disabled loved ones or people whose jobs like nursing or doc- something like that, emergency services, require work on, on different Sundays. We, we're understanding. We should aim, heads of households, man, I, I want you to think about this. How are you making your home a restful, relaxing, Jesus-focused home for the Sabbath? We should, though, and here's, here's some of us need to hear this part, Part of the Sabbath commandment is work six days. <laughs> I know how tempting it is when, uh, when you can live in mum's basement and, and work two days, if that, and Sabbath five days. Praise, if God loves one day of Sabbath, he loves five. No, work hard for six, leave that one for rest and relaxation. I know we have a five-day week that's very new in terms of history, uh, but, but we should aim to have a six-day labor, one-day rest. Six days of labor, one day of rest. Not always in the workforce, of course, but, but doing what we can to work hard for six, squeeze our work into those days. It is actually hard work to get a good rest. We know that. <clears throat> And friends, ultimately the Sabbath is pointing to the rest that we have in Jesus from our spiritual labor and work of satisfaction to God's law. The standard of righteousness for God is absolute perfection. We can never reach it. We can never attain it. And the mindset of the world is to try. Make lots of rules. Obey them all. You'll get there. Work hard. Serve hard. Obey, obey, obey. And one day you might just get close enough to God that he allows you in, that he forgives you, that he gets rid of your old sin. But God's salvation comes in one way and one way alone. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who on the cross, after taking our sin of failure, our sin of committed offenses, he died paying our debt. And on the cross, his words cried out, it is finished. You do not need to add to the work of Christ. You do not need to help him save you. You do not need to obey a little and then it's done. It is finished. The day that you cast your faith in Christ, You are justified, righteous, and that never depletes. You will never get more righteous than the day you are on on the day of your salvation. It's an eternal, finished work. And when that lands in our souls, we are able to truly rest. Not striving after God, we're resting in his finished work. When striving after uh, earning heaven, we're resting in his finished work. So with that, may I just pray over us all. Can we bow our heads? We'll have our final song and then communion. God, while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed in reverence to you, I just ask that you would show each of us where we are before you. If we have unrepentant sin and we're Christians, if we have sin we're still committing and we're Christians, would you lead us out of that? Would you free us realizing that the the chains and the bondages to sin are broken in Jesus? He finished it. He died and he gloriously rose to bring us into new life. I pray, God, that you would give to Christians power to repent and obey you. 
But Lord, I pray that first you would give us a resting in your finished work. An ability to to look to the work of Christ on the cross and the empty grave and the ascension to the throne and the sending of your spirit as all that is necessary and it is done by you for us. I pray, God, that you would give us a sense of rest in his work and his justification. I pray, God, that those who do not know Jesus would be brought to him today, that as we think about his death and think about his example, that they would be drawn to him and that they would put their faith in him alone because that is the only way to be saved, to receive your grace by believing on Jesus. pray, Lord, that we would be a people who do, in response to your salvation, uh, work hard to rest and work hard to remember and work hard to consecrate a day for you and to your glory. And we thank you, God, for all that you do for us in and by your word, in the church. And as we sing now, would you raise our, our hearts in joyful triumph over sin, the death, uh, and, and the grave. And may you be glorified in all that we do. And everybody said, amen, amen.